Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. I want to remind us where we are. One of the primary themes through the book of Genesis is God's promise to build and redeem a people for himself, through which God is going to redeem the world. You remember, God made all things. He made it good. He made it in perfect harmony, everything functioning as it should. And and the image bearers of his that he made, male and female, related to him perfect related to each other perfect. We're we're stewarding creation the way God intended it to be stewarded. And they, they, they were extending righteousness throughout the world. And yet, sin comes in because of man's rebellion and it thrusts everything into chaos. And essentially from Genesis 3 uh, up till now, it has just been a continual pattern of chaos being unfolded. But then comes in these important, what are known as the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three incredibly like Mount Rushmore type figures for the scriptures. You'll, You'll see all through the scriptures, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jacob. Why, you know, because this is an important lineage, because what this does is it doesn't make God out to be this kind of general God over everything, and God can be in Allah, and God can be in Buddha, and oh, God also manifests himself as Joseph Smith, or God, no, no, this is a very specific thing that says, no, no, the Bible makes the claim, there are, all roads do not lead to Rome. There are not multiple gods. God does not reveal himself in multiple manifestations. He is one God. And he is the God who come and made the heavens and the earth. He is the one God, the one true God who comes to Abraham. Out of all the men in the world, all the people in the world, he comes to this pagan moon worshiper and says, I'm going to make a people out of you. I, the one true God who is unmatched, I'm coming to you because I'm beginning to heal the break sin has caused in the world. And and I'm going to, and through you, Abraham, I'm going to make a people. And this people, I'm going to give land. And this people are going to be mine, my special possession. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to use you to be a blessing to the nations around you. I'm going to protect you. And if if anybody comes after you, I'm going to take care of them for you. Like, you are mine. I've chosen you and this people out of all the nations of the earth. And through this nation I'm going to build, the whole world will be blessed. I will bring about global redemption, right? And then that promise gets passed to Isaac, Abraham's son. And then Isaac, that promise, God passes it on to Jacob. And now none of these men were perfect men, Right? There were all these places where it seems as if God's plan is going to be permanently derailed. And I'm not going to preach all their lives again. But if you remember our journey, Abraham screws up time and time again. Isaac, he just kind of is a pass-through <laughs> to some degree. Uh, but then Jacob, oh my Lord, Jacob is just a mess of a person. 
But yet God is faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the whole thing. And now, today, we sit at the beginning of Genesis chapter 38, and we're at one of those points again. Jacob is now old. He's not dead yet, but he's very old. Genesis, the main narrative, has moved beyond the three foundational patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to now we're going to look at his sons, his 12 sons, with the primary emphasis being on the youngest son, a man named Joseph. And that is essentially starting in Genesis 37 all the way through Genesis 50, the last chapter. The primary guy is Joseph. But as we saw in Genesis 37, Jacob's sons did an extremely despicable act, spearheaded by Jacob's fourth son, Judah. Tony, you did a phenomenal job last week preaching Genesis 37. What a gift to see the, 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 the men God's raising up to preach God's word here that aren't just Darren and I. That is something to be celebrated, folks. Something absolutely to be celebrated, and there's more to come. Praise the Lord. But the long story short of what happened in 37 is that these 11 brothers decided to sell their brother Joseph into slavery and then lie to their father that Jacob was killed by a wild animal. Genesis 37 ends with a family fractured, a father mourning. The crying is like perfect for this. It's perfect. Like that's what you should be doing right now. Which, by the way, I want you to know, parents, that does not bother anyone at all. I, I, I read a quote the other day that I thought was phenomenal, and it said, better are the noises of children at church than the noise of their deafening absence. Let this church be filled with kids and know that we're here to help love them and take care of them and rub their noses when they're crying. So Genesis 37 ends with a family fractured, a father mourning, a lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob really shown to be conniving murderous liars as the youngest son is winding up in Egypt as a slave. It seems as if the promise of God to build a people for himself through whom he will redeem the world, it just always seems to hit a dead end. It seems to always, like finally, okay, you barely got Jacob across the finish line. Now these 12 sons, holy crap, there's like nothing to even redeem here. This sucks. These kids are horrible kids. Where are we going to go? How in the world is God's promise going to move forward with all of this selfishness, wickedness, and sin? And this is from God's people, no less let alone what the pagan world's doing, which that's a whole nother history lesson of how terrible the surrounding nations were around them, i.e. see child sacrifice, just as a quick little idea. But unfortunately, our chapter today is not going to give you much more hope. <laughs> but as we will see, what is a total disaster does end with tremendous hope and ends with tremendous, tremendous life change. As we walk through Genesis 38, I want us to keep this quote in mind from A.W. Pink. This is a guy that Darren and I have referenced frequently uh, it, it, throughout this. He's the one that said, in Genesis, all the seed, all the major doctrines of the Bible are in seed form. Well, here's another quote from him. It says this, It is not easy to decide which of the two is more wonderful and blessed, 
the grace of God, which has given the believer a perfect standing in Christ, or the grace of God, which ever bears with the believer who fails so miserably in making his state correspond with his standing. That is a great thought to contemplate. What is more wonderful, that God saves wretched sinners, not by their work, but because of what God has done for us in Jesus, or that he sticks with wretched sinners even when they fail time and time and time and time and time again. And yet God says, I've made you perfect before me and I'm making you perfect along the way. And I'm not going to abandon you. Think about that over half time. I'm pretty sure the entertainment's gonna be terrible anyway. It hasn't been good since 1989. <laughs> so 1999, ZZ Top was pretty cool. But if we have a right view of ourselves and a right view of God, here's what I think we, we have, maybe not exhaustive, but I think number one, we sit in awe of how marvelous God's grace is to his people. Number two, I think it causes us to rest in his power to accomplish what he has said he will do. And number three, I think it, should ca it causes us to strive to live faithfully to the God who is so faithful to us. May that be produced in us today. So, okay, let's dive into this text. Here's what we're going to do. Jen, we're going to look at the first 11 verses, okay? Buckle up, folks. Genesis chapter 38, this is the word of God. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die, like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. It's a fun little read isn't it? So you might rightly be asking the question, why is this chapter in here? You're probably going to ask that again when we move into verses 12 through the end. Why is this chapter in here? And that is a great question because here's the deal. This narrative through Genesis could really easily end in 37 and go right to 39. 
You could even see how seamlessly these two chapters would fit together. It's all about Joseph. So why this detour? Why share these things of all things? Why now the focus for this one section on Judah? Because make no mistake about it, Tamar is going to make a real important uh, rise in this narrative. But this chapter is about Judah. More on Tamar later, but Judah is the primary focus. Remember, Judah is Jacob's fourth son. And what we've seen from Judah so far is he's a terrible guy. And he's still, in chapter 38, not a good man. Judah is the one who had the idea, instead of, hey, let's not kill our brother, let's sell him. Let's make some profit off of him. Because I want him dead, but selling him, at least let's profit from his death. And so he was the spearhead of selling his brother to some band of merchants that eventually caused Joseph to be sold into Egypt, into Potiphar's uh, household. But something happens in this chapter that is going to shape Judah. Genesis ends with a different character being displayed in Judah that has not been seen so far. And we will see this change, for example, in Genesis chapter 44 in a remarkable moment. Again, another cliffhanger for you to stay tuned. Both his life and Tamar, his daughter-in-law, will forever be impacted. And through them, God actually will work his purpose for his glory and, and our good. So in verses 1 through 5, here's what we see. Judah leaves his family to live among the Canaanites. In the aftermath of selling his brother, Judah leaves to settle among a people who are not his people, and they are not God's people either. He marries a Canaanite woman. We don't know this woman's name. We just know her as a man named Shua's daughter. Judah, Judah's departure and marriage display a character in Judah that is really more like Jacob's brother Esau than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you remember, Esau was a very impetuous man. He was a very sensually driven man. He did not want to be with his people who were God's people. He went to live among the Canaanites. He married a Canaanite woman. He was very fleshly driven. I'm so hungry, I'll sell my birthright just to get your soup. Like he's a stupid, stupid man. He really is. He's just a dumb man. And Judah is showing himself to be a stupid, dumb, wicked man. Let's sell my brother for profit. I'm going to come out from the people of God, and I'm going to settle it among pagans, and I'm going to live among a pagan. And oh, by the way, just a spoiler alert, he's about to sleep with his daughter-in-law, who he thinks is a prostitute. Yay! <laughs> There's something profoundly symbolic and revealing about where Judah goes and who he marries. And it seems as if there's no desire in Judah to pursue God, to pursue the God of his father, or to dwell among God's people at all. Over the years of ministry, this is just kind of a side note, I've seen things like this play out all the time. People drift away from the Lord, and more often than not, it's because sin has come into their life. And because sin has come into my life, I don't want to be sanctified. I don't want people to actually love me enough to point out some things that maybe I need to grow in. Or, you know what? I could play church for a while, 
but man, I love my pornography. I could play church for a while, but man, I love to drink and gamble. I could play church for a while, but man, I, I really don't want to be called to holiness and growth. And so what happens is over time, they begin to drift because these sins begin to be more appealing to them than the light of God's holiness, than the, than the real love of God's people. Under the idea of the book of Proverbs, it says, better are the slaps of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. Judah prefers the kisses of enemies over than the loving slaps of friends. And so he leaves. And I've seen so many people do this over the years. And I, every time, I can't find a single time in my life when someone just drifts away that there's not been a sin in their life that they love more and want more. Oh, be careful of that, folks. Who we camp with in our lives says a lot about us. And then what we see is Judah is there, he's taken his wife, he's living among the pagans, is that in verses 6 through 11, Judah takes a wife for his firstborn son, Ur. I wish I could do that. For, boys, I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to take a wife for you. But Ur, we're told, is a wicked son. He is wicked in the sight of the Lord, verse 7 says. Now, the, re the reality is we're not told specifically why Ur is wicked. But in the end, it really doesn't matter. Ur was a wicked man and no doubt displayed his wickedness through his actions. And because of this, God kills him. Literally, God kills him. This is the very first time in all of the scriptures we see God condemn an indiv a single individual to death because of their own sin. Now, he has already brought judgment on the earth through the flood, but this is the first time he does so on a single individual because of his sin. And what's interesting is there is no mention of Judah mourning the loss of his son. Instead, all, he, all we read is he approaches his second son, Onan, and in keeping with what is known as Leverite marriage, he says to the younger son, go and produce an heir for your dead son's wife. Now this sounds weird to our ears, but this was a custom that was widely practiced in the ancient world. It's called Leverite marriage, and it was practiced even up to the days of Jesus. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 10, gives specific laws for God's people on how to properly engage in Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage was a custom that when an older brother died without an heir, the younger brother was to marry her and father a child, which is kind of interesting here. There's no necessary implication or uh, connotation that, that Judah tells Onan to marry Tamar. He just says, go sleep with her and produce an heir. Now, there may be some inherent thing that just that means they're going to marry, but, but we're not really sure. He just says, go sleep with her and make an heir. For Ur. And what happens is under Leverite marriage, when the firstborn son was born, that son was not counted to the brother. It was counted for the deceased brother. It was like it was like it was like the deceased brother's son, not the younger brother's son. And what this did was accomplished a couple things. Number one, it ensured that the deceased brother's name would not be blotted out. Number two, it would also mean that the inheritance that would have gone to the oldest son would now pass to the Leverite son, keeping the father's wealth inside the family because of this thing called primogenture. I'm sorry, it's a, but what would essentially happen is the oldest son would get two-thirds of the inheritance, and it would make sure that it was kept within the family to keep the family prosperous. 
If that oldest son was cut off, that put all of the wealth of the man in, je uh, in jeopardy. Number three, the son would be a source of protection and provision for a widowed mother. Onan, however, is also a wicked man who is extremely selfish. But here's what Onan does. He puts on the face of doing the right thing. See, verse 9 says that Onan knew if a child was produced, it wouldn't be his. It would be his dead brother Ur's son. So the child would cut into his ability to claim the inheritance that right now is coming to him. So he committed what is known as coitus interruptus. That's all I'm going to say about that. In order to make sure that she would not get pregnant. And so he could get what was coming to him. By doing this, here's what we see about Onan. Onan refused to do his duty. He failed in his role repeatedly and intentionally. This wasn't just a one-time thing. Look what the text says. Um, uh, verse 9, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, this was a regular pattern. He would sleep with her. What we see is that Onan would not only uh, refuse to do what he was called to do, but he did so repeatedly and intentionally, and he was essentially using Tamar for his own pleasure. She's just a thing to me. He puts his own interests ahead of everyone. Additionally, he brings shame on Tamar because it would have the appearance that Tamar is barren, which was a mark of shame in the ancient community. But Onan is going to look like the good guy. Hey, man, I'm doing my thing. She's not getting pregnant. Like, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I look the part. But deep down, I know who I am. Owen thinks his sin is in secret. But verse 10 tells us that the Lord saw it all. Saw it all the way down into the dark corners of his heart and his mind. And for this, the Lord puts Onan to death. Again, there is no mention of Judah mourning the loss of his second son. Such a contrast, right? Like, just go back to the end of 38 or 37. Joseph hears about the perceived death of jo or Judah. A lot of J's. Jacob hears about the perceived death of his son, Joseph, and he mourns the rest of his life, we're told. Judah, not a single mention of caring about his sons being dead. But after Onan's death, Judah essentially now gets rid of Tamar by sending her back to her father's house to wait until his third son, Shelah, is old enough to marry. Now, it's very likely that the reason why Judah did this is because he's doing this to preserve the life of his third son. So his inheritance would go to his third son. Now his entire estate is in jeopardy. See, he possibly, very possibly believes Tamar's the reason why my sons are dead. Never realizing it's his own children who were the wicked ones. So to protect his third son, he sends Tamar away. Go live as a widow in your father's house. When Sheila's old enough, then you can marry him. And so she goes back home. But this is not the end of the narrative, and it gets even more complicated. Let's pick it up in verse 12. In the course of time... The wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. 
And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock, something every girl needs. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send or what if if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. Verse 20. Jude, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the colt prostitute who was, at, who was at Enaim, at the roadside? And they said, no colt prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no colt prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. <laughs> what is going on? So Judah's wife has passed away, and finally we read that he grieved. And after a time of mourning, he was comforted. And Judah takes his flock to go get sheared, a couple of miles away from where they lived. These types of shearing times, these were like significant parties. Like think of riotous, drunken festivals and feasts as the sheep are getting sheared. This is where... Uh, Judah is going. Years have passed since Judah sent Tamar to her father's house to wait for Sheila to grow up. Verse 14 tells us that Sheila had grown up by now and that Tamar had not been given to him in marriage. So picture this. Judah is headed to a party while Tamar is alone in her widowhood. It seems as if Judah had never intended to give Sheila to Tamar. Judah is leaving her alone and a vulnerable widow. This is not how God's men are supposed to act. And when the nation of Israel would have read this from Moses, they would have been horrified at their ancestor. Tamar is told somehow about Judah taking the sheep to the sheep shearing festival. Who told her this? We're not really sure. But Tamar knows Judah is not going to do what is right. She then disguises herself as a prostitute and deceived Judah and conceives a child with him. And here's the crazy thing. Do you know that in this story, Tamar is looked at, at the more as the more righteous? Not Judah. Now, the Bible is not condoning what she did. But the Bible is giving credence for why she did what she did. She is extremely shrewd in how she goes about this. She secures Judah's seal, staff, and cord as like a, a down payment for the actual payment, deceiving 
uh, Judah to think what's going on. And this is amazing because these personal effects that she takes from Judah are like, it's like taking my wallet and my chair. Like there's no doubt who these are. The seal would have been a wooden or metal thing that was de delicately crafted. And he would have wore, a wore, wore it around his neck like a cord. So it was his seal when he made something. And his walking stick, man, think how personal Gandalf's was to, his, to, to him. Like, this is like a, the personal to him. So she takes these three things that only belong to Judah. And she secures them as a down payment for their tryst. I love how Ligonier Ministries put what Tamar does into perspective. And this is our second quote that we have. Listen to what Ligonier Ministries says. It says this. We are shocked at Tamar's move. But Moses' sympathy remains with her. And the entire chapter clearly condemns Judah's unfaithfulness. There was no legal redress for her. Think about this. Judah had left her to, to just waste away. She had no standing under the law. She was just going to die alone, unprotected. And this guy had been lying to her. She, and there was nothing she could do about it. And she could not marry another one of Judah's sons without his approval. Moses, therefore, regards her as the most righteous actor in the drama. And so should we. This is amazing what Tamar does. Tamar is alone back in her Canaanite world among her pagan roots. And she never once, do we read, wants to go marry another pagan. She never once wants to go back into that life of being a Canaanite. She is being faithful to the people of God, which has to give some implication that she wants to be aligned with the people of God. And she is unwilling to go create some kind of a, a baby on her own that would have pagan roots. She goes, no, I'm tied to this family. This family is who belongs to God. I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that I can produce an heir in keeping with this family that my life is tethered to. Oh, there's a lesson to be found there. And it is amazing to see how Tamar's desire to not go back to her pagan roots, but did what she could to continue Judah's lineage and produce an heir for him. She cares more deeply about this than Judah does. She has fully identified with God and his people, no matter their faults. And after the interaction is done, Judah goes back to sheep shearing and partying, and she puts on her widow's clothes and heads back home. Then finally, Judah does try to bring the goat to pay her, sends a guy. They go looking for her, can't find her. They call her a cult prostitute, which is kind of a way of saying the escort, <laughs> as opposed to the prostitute. And they can't find her. So Judah is like, you know what? She's got my cord. She's got my signet. She's got uh, my staff. That's enough. I don't want to become a laughing stock of the community. Just let her have it. Let's move on. <laughs> but then what we see is a few months later. Let's pick it up in verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was brought out, so she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. 
and he did not know her again. That must have been a terrible moment for Judah. But even there, think about Judah's wickedness. He has been throwing wickedness around like a, like a, like a diner chef slings eggs and pancakes. He's just throwing it around, <laughs> right? The minute he hears about this forgotten girl that he's left to rot has made the appearance of impropriety, what's the first thing he says? Let's hear her out. Oh my gosh, I didn't treat her right. No, it's let her be burned. People in sin are typically sometimes the most judgmental, aren't they? But she, being shrewd, says, wait a minute, as she's being brought out to be burned, I'm pregnant by the man to whom these things belong. And Judah looks at him and was like, it was like my junior year of high, senior year of high school. I told my parents after prom I was staying at my friend Jesse Martinez's house when I was actually staying at another person's house. And I walked in the next morning at about noon feeling all happy, skippity, nice, fun, and good, thinking I'd gotten away with it. And I walked through the door, and my shrewd mother and father sit down at the table, and they begin to question me about prom. It's great. I had my whole story lined up. Then at the end, they go, so how was staying at Jesse's house? And I'm like, oh, it was awesome. Man, it was so much fun. Who was all there? I even had a list of names, people who were there. And she was like, really? Oh, that's amazing. And then she goes, we called Jesse's at about 10 o'clock. You weren't there. And there I was looking at my cord, signet ring, and staff. <laughs> right? Like that's the point that Judah is in right now. And it's amazing that he finally, through this colossal embarrassment of looking at his own life in the mirror, and he realizes, I'm a wretch. I'm a wretch. I've done this woman don't wrong. I didn't do what I said I was going to do. And now look at what has happened. And when it says he, doesn't, he did not know her again, this is a beginning the shift and change in Judah's heart that he is now beginning to walk away from his life of wickedness. And then we see in verses 27 to 30 that God does something amazing. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her room, or in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Two baby boys are born from this mess of a union. And through the encounter of Judah coming face to face with his own sin, you begin to see a change in his heart. Again, that we'll see more evidenced as Genesis goes on. And Tamar, this forgotten, left to die and waste away woman, who, yeah, did kind of a crazy thing, but the Bible commends, in her desperation, he gives her life. Her womb that should not have had a baby has two babies. And the older one that was supposed to be born first 
Remember, the oldest son is the one that all the inheritance goes to. The oldest son was the one who was primary in importance. This other son subverts it and comes out in a way that allows the younger son to be subversive to this older son. And this is what I think is amazing. God intervenes in a way that would not allow the perpetual wickedness to continue. He creates a breach and says, I'm beginning to move this in a new direction. And this little baby named Perez, and these two, they continue Judah's lineage. They bring protection and lift Shamar's tame. Lift Shamar's tame. Lifts Tamar's shame. And in, and in the line of Perez, kings come from his line. You know who the first king born in the line of Perez is? David. Israel's greatest king. You know who comes from David's line? The king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. The gospel of Matthew opens with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar is one of four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. This is a beautiful picture, and we see it in two ways. Judah, despite who he is, God does not abandon him. He corrects him. He disciplines him, but he does not forsake him. He may walk in the way of Esau, but never once do we see God correct Esau. He just lets Esau do what he does, which is a warning. If you never feel conviction for your sin, here's what you need to hear. Be afraid because God's hand is not on you. But in Judah, God's hand is on him. Why? For his sake? No, because of Abraham's sake. I'm going to be faithful to Abraham. I'm going to be faithful to Isaac. I'm going to be faithful to Jacob. And I'll be faithful to you. Now knock it off. <laughs> right? He corrects him, but he never forsakes him. We will see how God's faithfulness to Judah does produce in him a more godly character. And Tamar, who has been used abused, forgotten, abandoned, and left alone, was provided a son, but is forever honored in the Lord. She is the matriarch to kings. She is the matriarch of Jesus the Christ and is forever honored in his genealogy as a, as a matriarch of Jesus. This life that seems to have no significance, no meaning, it doesn't matter at all. This life in Judah that is such a wreck should just be a forgotten and a wasted. God redeems them both in time. So remember, A.W. Pink, it is not easy to decide which of the two is more wonderful and blessed. The grace of God which has given the believer a perfect standing in Christ... Think of Tamar, a pagan, growing up among pagans, then used, abused, forgotten, totally misused. God redeems her by his grace. 
Or is it more wonderful that the grace of God, which ever bears with the believer who fails so miserably in making his state correspond with his standing? Is it more amazing that God saves Tamar, a pagan, who no doubt would have, would have worshipped false gods? She was not innocent, but she was treated like dirt. Or is it more wonderful that God stuck with Judah? They're both wonderful. They're both worthy of praise. So can, can you sit in awe that nothing will stop God's plans? Not even when his people fail miserably. Chapter 38 is God moving redemption history forward because he now established the kingly line of Jesus. If you belong to Christ, take joy that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you and he will never give up on you. He will correct you. He will discipline you. He will convict you of your sin. That's partly why we need each other. But he will never abandon you. But he will call you more and more into holiness. And nothing in you is going to want that, by the way. But that is exactly what we need. And if you are here and have been used, abused, forgotten, abandoned, there is great hope for you. While the world may trample on you, Jesus is kind and merciful and gentle. And what the world casts away, Jesus makes new. What the world says doesn't matter. Jesus says you're worth the life of mine being shed on a cross. The world may not honor you ever, but I will honor you forever in my kingdom. Both have great hope in the midst of mess because he's the only one that can make clean what we have jacked up. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son. And God, this is a dense, long narrative. And God, where I have failed to do justice to this narrative or where I have talked too long or God, where, where I have gotten in the way, will you just remove me from that and let us just remember the rich, amazing grace that you give to your people, no matter how far away we run. And God, may we see the incredible offer of Christ to all who feel used and forgotten and abandoned. And may all of us come to you God, thank you that nothing stops your work to move forward. May we rest in that. May we stand in awe of that. And may we all live faithfully to you, the God who is so faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.